It's time to get the story behind the story. Interviews with newsmakers, newsbreakers, and Vermonters making a difference. WCAX presents 802 News with Mark Johnson. Here's Mark. Lawmakers and Vermonters are bracing to see what happens on town meeting day when proposed school budgets are projected to cause an eye-popping 20% average increase in education property taxes. In some cases, the jump could be closer to 40%. Officials say rising health care insurance costs, increased mental health needs for students, aging school infrastructure, along with an end to federal pandemic funding, are among the reasons why taxes are expected to soar. Another factor is a change lawmakers made to the Byzantine funding formula that provides more for schools with students from low-income families or English language learners or from rural areas. That law, Act 127, capped tax increases for homeowners at 5% with the intent to soften the impact for communities not receiving the boost in funding. However, whether by design or for legitimate reasons, budgets went up so much that homeowners in more communities than expected would have qualified for the 5% cap. In response, lawmakers and the governor recently voted to remove the cap and replace it with a less generous circuit breaker to create an incentive for communities to go back and cut their budgets. H850 also gave communities the option to push back their school budget votes to after-town meeting day, which some have decided to do. Education funding in Vermont is, to say the least, complex. Local communities pass budgets, but the state funds the spending from the pooled property taxes as well as other sources. The intent is to provide enough funding so students in areas with less property wealth have the same opportunities as students in property-rich communities. That was the goal of Act 60 after the Vermont Supreme Court ruled in 1997 that the current system was unconstitutional because property-rich towns had the ability to spend substantially more than their property-poor neighbors. Some lawmakers are predicting a large number of budgets will go down to defeat next week from taxpayers who simply can't afford the expected hefty tax hike. In this edition of 802 News, sponsored by Red Hand Baking Company, I spoke to legislators at the Statehouse about why the state's $2 billion-plus education fund is growing and whether a new formula to pay to educate the approximately 83,000 students statewide is needed. We start with House Speaker Joe Krowinski, a Burlington Democrat, who says lawmakers are taking the sticker shock taxpayers are facing quite seriously. Uh, this is the perfect storm of issues and challenges coming together around how we um, fund our public education. I want to just reiterate how critical it is that we make sure we're giving our kids the best education. However, certain factors um, like running out of the federal funds, the cost of teacher health care, cost of construction, all of these things have increased the rates to, to very high levels. We are taking this extremely seriously. Uh, yesterday, the governor signed House Bill 850 um, that takes away the cap mechanism that will help the situation, but it's not the solution. So we are looking at several different ways um, to address um, this this very serious issue in the building. Our House Education Committee is looking at different policies as well as our Ways and Means Committee. So we'll continue um, to focus on this for short, medium, and long-term solutions. Can you talk about what those committees are looking at? So one example is school construction. 
we know that the cost of school construction has been going up. There's been a lot of deferred maintenance, and that is putting a lot of pressure on budgets. So that's one example of a policy change that we're looking at. What about longer term? Longer term, we're throwing everything on the table. We're looking at school consolidation. We're looking at different ways to help support schools. Um, And I really encourage people, if you're interested in this, to pay attention to what the House Education Committee is doing. Uh, I know they've been hearing lots of testimony, different ideas from the field. And so, like I said, they're hearing from all different stakeholders. They're putting all the ideas on the table, and they're going to continue to take testimony to shake out like what rises to the top. Is it time for a new funding formula? Um, Our Ways and Means Committee continues to look at that. It's very complicated. And one thing I've learned in this building is that the more progressive and fair you make something, the more complicated it gets. I think that we do have a really good funding system in place right now. And perhaps there are further tweaks that we can make to it. But I'm really leaving that in the hands of our Ways and Means Committee to look at. What are you hearing from legislators and what they're hearing from taxpayers? I think there's lots of questions and concerns about what um, what the rates are and how we got here. But at the end of the day, it's going to come, you know, it's going to be the voters that decide on these school budgets. And then we'll have to come back and look at what school budgets are now looking at. Like, so how many were approved, how many weren't approved, and that will help us set the yield for the state. A lot of members are just spending time listening to people and their neighbors and their communities to hear about um, their thoughts on their school budgets and whether they support it or not. Is there enough time between now and the end of the session to, quote unquote, fix this? Uh, Well, it depends on what you're talking about. Like I said, we've already passed a short term um, solution to this. And I think that we do have opportunities to tackle some more of the shorter and medium um, term plans. This isn't a one session um, goal for us. This is something that we have been working on and will continue to work on. What did the governor, what did the bill that the governor signed yesterday do to make this better, less bad, however you want to characterize it? I think this gives uh, local school boards the opportunity to open up their budgets again and look at ways to cut. And if we can, if even if uh, several districts uh, open up their budgets and lower costs and come back, that will help the bigger picture. Like I said, it's it's a complicated way that we fund our schools, but I think that this one um, lever that we're using in this instance with House Bill 850 uh, will make some small changes, and we're committed to the long term to look for other changes as well. L- last question. So why should I, in my community, lower costs. Why don't I just let everybody else do that? We're all in this together. And our budget in Burlington or Montpelier or Brattleboro still um, impact the entire state. So it is important that we're all looking at how we can support uh, public education in the state. Up next, we hear from Emily Kornheiser, a Brattleboro Democrat who chairs the powerful House Ways and Means Committee, who says she's among those who can't afford a substantial tax hike. How serious, dire, what's the word you would use to describe the situation with education funding with town meeting day next week? 
I think our schools have expressed that there are significant needs in the aftermath of the pandemic. They have significant needs for school construction after us not spending on that for a decade. They have significant mental health needs with their kids. Teachers have been through a lot over the last few years, and so as a result, we're seeing teacher salaries going up, healthcare costs are rising, and all those issues together, they're causing a bit of a perfect storm in that we're seeing school budgets coming in significantly higher than we have in the past, and the federal money isn't there anymore to make up the difference. And as you know, Vermont school spending is decided at the local level with local school budgets, and we see Vermonters over and over again saying, yes, we believe in our schools, we want to vote for our school budgets. On the other end of that is the fact that our schools are funded primarily by property taxes. And so when school spending goes up, property taxes go up. That's the essential bargain of the education fund here in Vermont. And that's something really hard that we're grappling with this year. Can people deal with 20%? I can't, personally. And I'm sure a lot of other people can't. I'm sure some people can sustain that. And I'm hoping that there's some that we can do to buffer that impact on Vermonters. But right now, that's not entirely clear. We're not sure where school votes will come down. And I'm curious to see what Vermonters say on town meeting day about their budgets. Is there ultimately a better way to do this, to fund it? Well, if there was a simple way to fund it that was better, I'm sure we would have done that by now. There's a lot that's really great about our education finance system. It is indeed one of the most equitable education finance systems in the country in terms of how we use the grand list of the whole state, um, how Vermonters in really low-income communities are able to fully fund their schools. That's incredible. That's something Vermont does really well, and it's something Vermont has done really well for a long time. What's hard is the system is complex. That's what you know equity often is. And that means that local decision-making can sometimes get mired in confusion about, you know, technical terms. There was talk yesterday in House Education about maybe fewer schools. We have some aging infrastructure in Vermont across the board. And one of those pieces of our aging infrastructure is our schools. There's a lot that we can do to improve our schools and to modernize them and to clean them up. And some of them have sewage running through classrooms and we need to do something about that. And as we do something about that, newer and fewer is the words that we've been using so far. What does that mean? It means that communities can come together. We've been talking more and more about reduced capacity in municipalities for volunteer boards, um, Vermonters wanting more, Vermonters realizing that they're part of larger regions and larger communities, and that communities can come together across town lines to meet their citizens' needs and their kids' needs. Is there something that can be done about this between now and the end of the session about the education dilemma? There's a lot that can be done. There's a lot that we are able to do quickly. There are a lot of conversations that we've had for many years about these issues that we can act on. And there are a lot of stakeholders paying attention and at the table that might not have been in a less crisis situation. So I'm feeling really greater about our ability to collaborate with teachers, with superintendents, with school boards to find a path forward this year. Can you be a little more specific? No. We're figuring that out right now. Um, there's not a lot that 
can change for fiscal year 25, which is our next fiscal year that's coming up. You know, those are the budgets that are sitting with voters right now. And so the work we would be doing was thinking about changes to financing or changes to structures for fiscal year 26. We know that for, you know, issues around spending on school construction, we have a report of a school construction task force with a really clear path. That's what you referenced the um, education committee was working on. We just heard back on a pilot on community schools. We know that schools are spending a lot of money on essentially human services needs, whether that's laundry, food, social workers in their schools. We know that the community schools model is a much clearer way of doing that, a much more integrated way of doing that, so we can step into that in future years. And then there's how to think about the finance system. And there are a lot of different models that we've looked at to do that. You've been around here long enough that do these funding formulas just have a certain lifespan? That's what people say. Um, and apparently nationally, school finance formulas do tend to sort of change decade to decade. We did do significant overhaul in our education finance system with Act 127. And districts are working really hard and they're really tired from constant change. And so there's a question of if we can pile more change on top of 127. That said, after we passed Act 60, we did pass significant follow-up legislation after that to further refine it. So there might be opportunity there. So you'd rather keep 127 and modify that as opposed to starting over? 127 did really important, long-delayed work to acknowledge the resources that kids need in our communities. That can be paired with significant other work that can be done about how resources come into the system um, and how resources are used by schools. But that essential piece of ensuring that we know how many resources students need to succeed who are coming from certain disadvantaged classes is really core and important and came after about a decade of research and legislative action. What do you think is going to happen with school budgets on town meeting day? I honestly have no idea. You know, we're looking at so much statistical information right now about what money is being spent on, what past spending has been. And we did that a lot when we were working on 127. And the thing that's come back to me over and over again, and I have a background in um, economics and statistical analysis. And so I, I might have a little too much fun just looking at the data sometimes. But what I've found is that there are very few correlations to be found. Um, it seems that school spending decisions, spending decisions are made by culture, by community culture. It's not about the wealth of a community. It's not about the needs of a community. It's not about if schools are rural or urban. It's not even about political makeup of those communities. It seems to just be culture about whether communities tend to vote their budgets up or down. And I don't know if some of the more significant increases we're seeing this year will change that. I'm curious to see. I do know that some districts have decided to pause and look at their budget, rewarn it, and vote at a later date, but I'm not sure how many districts are doing that. But it seems like it's not going to make a big change. I mean, if you go back to even last year's budget, so many of these communities, instead of, you know, 18% are looking at 15 That, You know, the difference between 20% and 15% might not seem huge right now, but it would certainly be a big difference for me as I was paying my property taxes. I imagine it would be for you. It's still dollars. But it's still 15%. 
It is, absolutely. And, you know, it's also important to remember that those are averages and that every property tax bill is different. And the majority of Vermonters actually pay their education taxes based on, you know, with an income adjustment added to it. So those percentages are different. Um, But, yeah, it's a significant increase in education spending paired with a reduction in other revenue going into the education fund. And that's a tough thing we're dealing with this year. 25000 a kid on average? Those numbers are have so much variation between them that I don't think talking about averages is really the best way to get a handle on them. We've seen a real increase in special education spending this year, and we're trying to understand where that's coming from um, for very significant needs in special education you know, spending can be, you know, above 75000 And there are some schools that are spending $8,000 per kid. Peter Conlin, a Cornwall Democrat, chairs the House Education Committee. What a situation. How did we get into this situation where people are looking at these huge property tax increases? I, I think it's a combination of so many factors that have come on all at once. Um, you know, we it, the cost of education in Vermont is high. The needs of students, especially in the area of mental health, has um, it, it has simply grown at a level that I don't think people really even understand yet. Uh, and schools have had to respond because that's their job. They take whoever shows up at the door every day, and their job is to help the, every kid access their education. Uh, and get through the day. So, you know, the amount of money spent just on dealing with that situation, which is not a a Vermont only, that's across the country and across the world, you know, a lot of it before COVID, but coming out of COVID especially, that's costing a lot of money. We have healthcare costs that are out of control. A a family plan that used to cost $17,000 10 years ago per year is now $36,000 per year. Basic inflation, and then, you know, we operate an expensive system in Vermont. We, uh, we have a lot of school buildings, and uh, every school building needs to be staffed with at least a, a minimum number of adults. You put it all together, and um, it's expensive. And then, of course, we, you know, had a lot of federal dollars during COVID. Uh, those federal dollars were spent, I would say, very responsibly on meeting student need. But those federal dollars have ended, and the student need has not. It goes up every year, but this year just seems so much more dramatic. I think that that's probably um, inflation, health care, and the loss of the federal dollars, but not the loss of the need for those dollars to meet student need. Can Vermont afford an average of $25,000 a student? I guess that remains to be seen. Uh, you know, until now, voters have largely said yes. I think I think voters in Vermont really value uh, our education, um, value the system that we have. But I imagine uh, the affordability overall, this is going to play a bigger, bigger role in uh, maybe reaching the level where voters start saying no. But really, they're the ones who are going to decide whether we can afford it. And maybe, you know, given the role that schools play in community now and treating mental health for students, providing wraparound services for families that they've never had to do before, maybe this is the system that is before us and we have to choose if that's what we want and how we're going to fund it. Your committee was talking about the idea that maybe we have too many schools. 
Uh, yes, I think that that's an issue Vermonters are going to have to grapple with. Um, we have a lot of school buildings um, for a state with a declining enrollment that's gone from 120,000 to a little over 80,000 now uh, students. So, um, you know, these buildings have fewer and fewer kids in them by and large. That makes for an inefficient system, and uh, we got to deal with it. Um, it's contrasted by the fact that people really value having their small school in their small town. They consider it the, the hub, um, a place where sort of your first important relationships are built when, when you live in one of those communities. So figuring out that, I think it has to do a lot with how we define community. We still very strongly identify with town lines that were drawn in the 1600s. Um, and we probably need to be rethinking that in many areas. On the other hand, kids might have to go quite a distance to go to school. I guess that's relative. I grew up in Montpelier. I lived a mile from our school, and uh, I was on a 45-minute bus ride because the bus went all over town picking everybody up. Um, I, I don't know if we really know what too long a bus ride is and too short a bus ride is. But but I will say, you know, if you look at the schools that we operate, we operate you know, there's there's little kids and big kids, let's just say. And we operate a lot of very small high schools and middle schools. And I think we need to have a, a, a debate, a, a discussion about the value and the educational quality, balancing those two things when we look at, at what a small high school is or isn't able to offer to our students. Uh, you know, I think that's one area where we could probably reach a lot more accord than um, talking about small elementary schools. Tell me what you mean by that. Well, I think that, um, you know, when it comes to sort of, I've always said that, you know, one, one big issue that drives school policy in Vermont is seat time in buses. And I think we can probably talk a lot easier about longer bus rides when we're talking about older kids than when we're talking about younger kids. Uh, but we've got a lot of high schools where the graduating class is less than 25. Um, I think that these schools really struggle to offer sort of the breadth of offerings um, that our larger high schools offer and that a lot of kids and parents are looking for. Um, and so I think we need to ask ourselves, is, is that what we want? Is that fair to um, what kids are looking for? And uh, can we afford to continue to do that? Are there areas where costs can be cut? I always talk about not necessarily reducing costs, but bending the cost curve. And, you know, we, I think there are areas where we can make changes that can reduce costs, such as increasing our class sizes. Uh, I think probably we need to look at how many buildings we operate. Um, we identify students for special ed at a much higher level than a lot of other states. I think we, we are um, attacking that with Act 173 and the way we're funding and implementing special education. But a lot of these things sort of require um, investment to get the payoff later. Just our, our attempt to deal with the cost of special education requires that we get a lot of professional development in our schools and, and we're just not getting there yet, but that's going to require some investment. Hopefully, good training, good investment in that will get to kids before they become identified as needing extra support. What do you think the reaction of taxpayers is going to be? 
I don't know the answer to that. Um, I, we'll see after town meeting day. I think that um, the numbers that we're seeing are probably more than a lot of Vermonters are going to say they can afford. Uh, and I think the reaction will probably be more school budgets defeated than we have seen in many years. Uh, you know, we got to remember that um, school spending decisions are made locally. We fund those decisions at the legislative level. Um, so the fixes are going to have to be done hand in hand locally and at the legislative level, you know, to, to bring tax rates down. Our options are somewhat limited at the legislative level uh, because, you know, it would be adding more revenue to the education fund, but that's got to come from somewhere as well. You know, we can look at, at, at strategies, but they're not strategies that are going to make a huge difference this year or perhaps even next year because making substantive, systematic change in education takes time to, and you got to do it right. How confident are you that this is a one-time bump? Is this what people are going to be looking at year after year after year? Uh, well, I mean, it, it is certainly a one-time bump um, because, but then you are sort of setting spending at a, a new level, um, and maybe you'll only go up uh, five or eight percent the next year. So, you know, if people are comfortable going to that level, then it, it won't um, feel as challenging years after. But the headwinds and the, and the cost factors that schools are facing when it comes to health insurance, um, mental health needs of students, um, cost of staffing, uh, these aren't going away overnight. We need to, we're having trouble attracting and keeping um, teachers, well, for any trade actually in Vermont, and, uh, and the cost of housing here has is, is become so high that, you know, it's not a question of them wanting more, it's the question of people needing more money in order to afford to buy a house in Vermont. Is there a direct enough connection between what local communities want to agree to spend and then what comes back and what the rate is set by the legislature? Our school funding system is a shared system. Uh, and I think that this year's sort of crisis in cost is making districts think together rather than separately because they know that what the decisions they make has an impact on their neighboring district. You know, at the legislative level, we probably need to figure out a way to better directly tie decisions that are made locally to the impact locally so people under, have a better understanding that those decisions aren't just affecting them, but that are affecting everybody. Um, how we get there and still maintain a, a very progressive um, tax system is really challenging. I even remember the days of pre-Act 60, where it was literally what you spent in your town is what you paid in taxes. That's right. And, you know, the, the inherent unfairness of that in a property-rich town is what led to the Brigham decision, which led to Act 60. Uh, and, you know, we could look at we could look at other formulas where you decide what's an adequate amount per pupil for education, provide towns with that kind of money. And if they chose to spend more, they could raise it locally. But again, you still fall into that trap of, well, some towns are going to be wealthier and have an easier time doing that than other towns. And, you know, it's pretty clear in our state constitution 
education is like the only government function that is named in our state constitution. And that is the job of the state. And um, the Brigham decision said that we need to do that equitably across the state. What happened? So why didn't Act 60, why did it sort of run its course? Well, I think that uh, the the goal of Act 60, I mean, uh, you know, legal cases still cite the Brigham decision that resulted, that, that um, prompted Act 60. I think that its spirit has not run its course. I think that, you know, we we can't have rich towns that can, you know, have the Taj Mahal of schools at a low tax rate and poor towns that can't possibly provide that level um, in a, a small state like ours. It needs to be looked at from a state level and what's adequate for every student in the state in order to, to be funded. So I, I, don't, I don't necessarily think that Act 60 is run its course, but I think it's probably good practice to look at your funding model every decade or two and see if it needs to be refreshed. Can you explain to me and everyone else what how Act 60 and Act 127 work together or on top of each other, what the interplay is? Uh, so... Um, Act 60, you know, says that uh, uh, we have a state, a state education funding system so that, you know, that the state funds the decisions that are made locally. Uh, and with that, the state is sort of in charge of distributing tax capacity and tax rate increases. So you have a statewide tax rate uh, for education. And that's affected by, in some ways, local spending as well as your uh, local grand list. Act 127 essentially um, redistributes that tax or taxing capacity based on the student need in each district. And I know that sounds confusing and hard to understand, but what it is saying is that some group categories of students are more expensive to educate than others, and the taxing capacity that a school district has needs to reflect that. You know, it's more expensive to, uh, studies clearly show that it's more expensive to educate a high school student because of oftentimes smaller classes, you need, you know, labs, all these other things. The idea here is to provide more state funding through a mechanism of tax capacity um, for those students. Is it time for a new funding formula? Uh, probably. Um, it's time to really look at uh, a funding formula that reflects what it should cost to educate our students and probably a funding formula that reflects what costs that schools bear should come out of our traditional way of funding education and what are those services and and um, supports that schools are providing that are that really used to be covered by what we call the general fund, you know, mental health needs, those sorts of things. So it, it probably is time to take a better look at that. So what I'm hearing there is less dependence on the property tax and maybe more from another source. If so, what might that be? Well, that's hard to say. I think, um, you know, we're going to need to look at how much we need to raise and how to raise it. Uh, you know, I, I think that you could look at the upper end of incomes and talk about how much they have benefited from federal tax breaks, especially during the Trump administration, and say, you know, is there a, a balancing effect to meet the needs of Vermont? Um, but I'm not the, a tax person. I'm more of an education policy person. So I leave that to uh, smarter minds than mine on that. We're dealing with a, an expensive, complex 
service that is vital and valued across the state. And there's not going to be an easy, you know, one size fits all solution. It just seems like this really has hit so much harder this year than in past years. And why? I, you know, I think it is, again, we keep talking about this perfect storm of, of things happening. I think we have a, we're coming out of COVID, the, um, you know, between COVID, uh, substance abuse issues, other traumas, the, the, the needs of our students coming into school are just significantly greater than they used to be. We have an aging teacher workforce, so we have teacher shortages. And in the world of supply and demand, that leads to higher labor costs. Um, and that goes not just teachers, but for all the, the people who work in schools. Um, we've got health insurance that's really climbing through the roof. And then we've got a significant loss of federal funds that, frankly, were spent wisely on what we need. But, and those needs exist, continue to exist, and the federal dollars do not. When you say COVID, are you talking about mental health issues with students? Yes. Yeah. And, you know, we can say mental health, but also just um, student readiness. I mean, we still have, you know, kids coming into schools who didn't sort of get that socialization that uh, kids get before they come in uh, and kids who have basically missed two years of school kind of finding their way through. You know, we've got we got a problem with absenteeism. We really need um, everybody reengaged in this. Why do you mention drug abuse, the drug situation? I think even before COVID, you know, peop, the experts in the field pointed to substance abuse. You know, we we're going through the opioid epi- epidemic, and now, you know, we've got this, this terrible change to fentanyl as really um, had there uh, an increased number of kids coming from homes where substance abuse was a problem. And that was, you know, obviously affecting their ability to engage in their education. Why? I think if you're not coming from a, a nurturing home where you're being spoken to, read to, um, cared for, uh, you're going to be that much less ready to engage in, you know, the sort of the formal structure of classroom education. Are you hopeful about this situation? I think I don't have any, none of us have any choice but to be hopeful. Um, it can be pretty hard sometimes, you know, when we look at just sort of the state of the world and the state of Vermont and the increase in homelessness and the and the spread of 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 drug problems um, with drugs that are new and difficult to understand how to treat people who are using them it can be it can be hard to be hopeful but I think we at least have reached a point where folks are willing to have hard conversations to really look at the problems and challenges that we have and speak about them bluntly and openly. What we're dealing with right now isn't going to be solved by the House Education Committee alone. It's going to take all of us working together from from families to teachers to principals to legislators, um, school boards, everybody working together to, to get a handle on things. We'll continue our discussion about an expected huge hike in education property taxes right after this. At Red Hen Baking Company, they believe pure, uncomplicated ingredients in the hands of skilled artisans are the building blocks for great food. They're dedicated to creating the best food from the best ingredients. You'll find an ever-changing lineup of delicious pastries, sandwiches, and soups at their beautiful cafe off Route 2 in Middlesex, just off I-89. Their breads are also available in many other locations. 
Led by owners Randy George and Eliza Kane, Red Head Baking Company has been on the leading edge of the local food movement since 1999. Back to our discussion about education property taxes. Up next, Democrat Thomas Chittenden of South Burlington, a member of the Senate Finance Committee, who says the 5% tax cap included in Act 127 created a quote-unquote perverse incentive for communities to increase their budgets, knowing homeowners wouldn't have to feel the full impact. How did we get into this education financing, I don't know what even the word is you used to describe it, situation, mess? So, so there's a long-term answer going back to the 90s, and then there's a shorter-term answer regarding the more recent pupil weight changes. I'd say long-term, I, I would say uh, Act 60 did something to our uh, education funding formula, formula gradually over 30 years where it centralized the funding of our schools but decentralized the decision-making. So we have local school boards putting forward proposals for what they have deemed necessary for that community, and then they, uh, the voters of those districts either approve or disapprove of those, those budgets. Those budgets are tallied by the whole state. We look at the funding uh, over the, what that total amount is, and then the state uh, funds it with about 70% from other sources other than property taxes, and then uses an extremely complicated formula to determine how much each person owes on their property taxes to equalize for the taxpayer what it costs to afford kids in the state. That's what's happened. It's changed multiple times over the years since Act 60 in the 90s, and many would argue that has detached decision-making uh, or the voter voting on that budget from the costs uh, associated with what's in the budget. So that's the long-term. Short-term, more of topic of late. Two years ago, a bill was passed that the governor signed that um, I did not hear a lot of debate or opposition towards, which applied an additional change to that funding formula, that very complicated formula that's been evolving since the 90s with the, uh, the Act 60 that was a result of the Brigham decision by the Supreme Court. This new formula change effectively changes how much a child is weighted in that formula uh, based on five, cate- five categorical categories. Uh, there previously was three, and then we added two. has to do with English as, a langu- uh, English as a second language, so English language learners, I believe, is the right term. Um, I want to say uh, poverty scales, so kids that have less resources. That formula, uh, those changes to the pupil weights, um, effectively created more taxing capacity in some districts, less taxing capacities in others. Uh, It raised the taxes in some districts and lowered the taxes in others for the same spending. Two-thirds of the districts in the state benefited from this new formula. They now could put forward the same budget, and they, if they did, they would actually have a lower property tax rate. Or what is happening and what happened to a great extent, they could increase spending and not increase the property tax rates for their community. The other third of the districts that are penalized by this have to pay more, meaning they have to put forward a budget that if it was the same amount, it would cost in some cases, 17% more uh, on their budget. And there's a a breakdown that you can see how each district is affected. The problem that we've just recently fixed had to do with something that was added in the last minute two years ago, uh, which was a mistake. Uh, It is um, honestly, and I think uh, legislators I speak to that understand this uh, recognize it was a mistake by the legislature to put this 5% cap in because it created a perverse incentive where just about every district in the state took advantage of it where they spent up 
up to 10%, which is where it would trigger, but it would cap them at 5%. And compounding that with a lot of other formula calculations, um, it drove up spending about $243 million on a $2 billion Ed fund, where in the years past, the most we ever saw that I think I heard was like a $60 million increase. So it was a huge amount of increase. All right, so Act 127 had this 5% cap. (laughs) In the defense of the Senate, what the Senate sent over to the House had a five-year rolling average of pupil weights. That, in retrospect, made a lot more sense. That was pulled in the last minute on the argument that it would take too long for the previously disadvantaged school districts to benefit from that new calculation. I hope everybody would agree with me that that was a mistake because that's what we had to correct this week, uh, which is put a lot of school boards into a tailspin where they have to reevaluate, rewarn, reconsider their budgets while explain to their voters something that was almost already unexplainable twice in three different ways, and it's even more difficult. I do think what we just did made things better because it restored a linear relationship between spending and tax rates. Uh, The 5% cap was putting districts in the state where we could either put forward a $65 million budget or a $71 million budget, and it's going to be the same tax rate. And then if the voters don't vote on that tax rate, we would have to, they would have to cut 40% from their budget just to get a 1% reduction on tax rate. So it was um, going to be a very scary argument to be made. While at the same time, that $200 million that everybody spent up that we cap from property tax rates has to come from somewhere. It's one pool because it's a, a self-equalizing formula. So the only other places it could come from would be the non-homesteads, which are the apartment complexes, the businesses, commercial properties, um, just anything that is not a homestead declaration, or other sources, which is where you can talk about other revenues. All that which I would also compound, um, is Vermont is spending the second most amount per pupil, according to just about every measure I've seen, second to New York. We spend a lot on our kids. Our outcomes are arguably not the best in the nation. I would say we're middle of the pack to to high range, depending on how we do it. So we spend a lot on our kids. But what's also been brought to my attention recently, and it's where I'm reading, have a report in front of me that I've been studying for today's afternoon discussion, is that Vermont has by far the lowest staff to student ratio. Um, So if you look at the chart, we are an outlier. And it's like 10.3 to every one child. And the next one is like 12.2. And then it goes up from there. That is where the cost of our education is, in the people in our classes. Now, that doesn't mean we don't need those people, but we might want to think about how we could deploy, assign, and manage people uh, in more flexible ways that don't drive up our, our, our spending so much. I've served on the city council. I understand budgets to that extent, and I've worked with the school district uh, during that time. 80% of, your, of school budgets are people. It's the the labor, the payroll. So if you want to look for savings, you have to look at people payroll positions, which is, those are tough conversations because when people have a role and they have a responsibility, changing those rules or looking at down um, or cutting back positions is never going to be easy. Over the last 20 years, as the governor has cited multiple times, the number of kids in our schools is declining. So we effectively have more the same, if not more staff with fewer and fewer students. The other thing that I need to read up on more, and I understand the House is looking at more closely, is it's the size of our schools. We have some very small schools out in, this, in the countrysides, which are driving those student-to-staff ratios. So I think one of the answers might be there is one remaining single-room schoolhouse uh, let open in Vermont. It might be time to close the single-room schoolhouse in Vermont. 
what we saw from the capital, the capital um, school capital construction task force is that one of their core recommendations to succinctly put it to set us on a path might be that we need in Vermont fewer and newer schools. Now that means kids might take longer bus rides, and that's a, so not something that's going to happen overnight. But if we all agree that we can't sustain these, these increases, these property tax increases, then we have to look at those systemic solutions. The one other piece that I would say that is weighing heavy on my mind today, but I, I don't think we fixed it when we took away this 5% cap. We, it is a band-aid for a sinking ship. Um, I would argue that this formula change is only going to increase more spending while also decrease revenue, which is unsustainable because the districts that benefit are, and as expected to, going to spend more, and they are spending more. And the districts that are penalized, your MMUs, your Stowe's, your CVUs, your South Burlington's, as well as, um, I can't list them all, but the, you can just look at the sheet. They are not going to pass budgets for 10 to 12 or 15 percent increases. I've lived through school budget failing at 6 percent increases. And so when those budgets aren't passed, those districts are going to cut, which means less revenue to the Ed Fund. So we're going to get less revenue and more spending. That's got to come from somewhere. We are on an unsustainable path with the current funding formula. I think we need to start looking at spending, but spending is currently decided entirely at the local level. That's why we have town meeting day. That's why voters go out and say yay or nay on these budgets. If you don't approve these budgets, the school districts will have to cut. They will have to find ways to spend less. So this is ultimately up to the voters who elect both the legislature and also vote on the town meeting day, that the way to also rein in spending is to, to express your point of view on what spending levels you, can, you support and you think is sustainable for Vermont. You said before, and I, I didn't know if I heard this right, that 70% doesn't come from the property tax. That surprises so there's this great visual I could bring up for you. It's on Personal Assets Institute or, yeah, Public Assets Institute, um, and they really break it down well. But uh, you've got, I want to say, um, only 25 to 30 percent are from homesteaders, the property tax rate. Then you've got about 35 percent from non-homesteads. So those are the apartment complexes. And then you've got sales tax goes into there, lottery funds. You've got purchase and use. We've got a variety of sources that make up the remaining 30 percent. The other compounding effect is not only is spending up $243 million, those revenues that also subsidize the Ed Fund are down this year. So that's why as much as spending on average for the whole state is up 14 percent per district. We're projecting a 20% increase in property taxes because the other revenues that usually buy down that rate didn't do as well as we thought. Where do we go from here? Um, I think we need to do a few things. One, we need consistent reporting and accounting of everything that we're spending on in our schools, and it needs to be consistent across districts. You can't improve what you don't measure, and you can't manage what you don't measure. Right now, we don't have consistency with a common ledger of accounts to the point where every district is reporting what they're spending on uh, paraeducators, uh, on teachers, on math instructors, on administrators, as well as on uh, other expenses, laptops, classrooms, facilities, and so on. For us to evaluate outcomes relative to resources, we need consistency across districts. And that was the intent of the Brigham decision, is educational access opportunity equity. We haven't addressed that. 
we will not have equitable access to educational opportunity in Vermont with every school district deciding priorities and focus points differently than each other. So we've entirely focused on taxpayer equity, but if we truly want to get back to the core of the Brigham decision, we need to have better insight from a state vantage point what our districts are spending money on so that we can compare them relative to their peers and so can the voters to maintain taxpayer equity. I also uh, would say, and this is currently happening, prior to Act 127, we had an excess spending threshold that was in place with a formula for ages. Um, we suspended it until, I have to confirm this, but I'm being told, and I have no reason to think it's false, uh, that it will come back in 2029. I fully support it coming back. It was a stick hanging over school districts, budgeting decision-making, that if they spent above a certain threshold, it's not that their tax rate would just go up still proportionally, it'd go up even more. That's the type of incentive that I think we've done. It's proven to work. We took it away because there was an argument why we did these pupil weights is there were going to be school districts, example, Winooski, that has been disadvantaged with more expensive kids to educate for ages and with this new formula, we didn't want to penalize them when they now could spend more on giving those kids the needs that they have. That being the case, it needs to come back when we start to settle and recalibrate. I think we should phase in that spending, uh, excess spending penalty. Is there a danger that I say, I'm not gonna lower spending in my community and hope everybody else does? <laughs> That's a great point, and that's where that 5% cap, I think, factored into it. People all saw the opportunity to spend more, and they wouldn't affect their taxpayers, so they were putting that spending on the other communities. That's where um, I, I think we, we made things better when we took away the 5% cap, because now there is a direct relationship between the budgets the voters approve and what their tax rates are. That wasn't there with the 5% cap. But you raise a good point. The other thing that I think circles around with what you're talking about, we income sensitize about 60% of not our voters, but our property tax uh, or residential or homesteads, let's get this correct, our homestead property owners. And when you income sensitize them, then they are less connected with the impacts of them voting yes on the school budget. All that being the case, when you were looking at these expenditures, uh, when this $243 million increase, they will still feel it because it's income sensitized on a larger amount. So it's still going to, um, I think, surprise voters if they approve um, a budget that is a 20% increase, even if they are income sensitized, because that's also on a scale. I don't know if that answered your question, but it was a good question. What impact, if any, has this incredible increase in the, in the cost of homes, the value of homes? And it isn't across every community in Vermont. What impact does that add? So that's factored into this common level of appraisal. So during the pandemic, there was a, made a large influx of people buying homes in Vermont at higher rates. Um, some would argue there, I think there's evidence out there, it was out-of-state purchases and so on. Plus, I would also say the other issue Vermont is systemically wrestling with is Act 250 has constricted growth and development, shrinking our housing supply. And I took freshman year economics, the less you have of something, the more expensive it is to purchase. So we have a supply problem of housing, which is driving up the cost of housing. And I believe that has been getting worse and worse. And we're almost, we are now by many people would say a crisis point. You talk about supply and demand. You could argue, you say there's not enough supply. Is there too much demand? 
It's a great question. So we have a pretty stagnant population. Um, so relative to other states, Vermont was expected to, in the last census, to actually decrease in population, but that happened right at the pandemic cusp, and we still gained, I think, over the 10 years of the census, two to 3,000. So to answer your question, too much demand? It's arguable. I have three kids, okay? I hope they have the choice to live here. I have three sisters. All three of my sisters don't live in Vermont. They went to where there was housing and opportunities and jobs. So they're living in Michigan and North Carolina and Pennsylvania. I'm not saying I want my kids to definitely stay here. I just want them to have the choice. And my concern is that demand, even when there aren't enough houses, it's just pushing people from the state. I want more people in Vermont. I want more people to experience Vermont. I love Vermont and I want Vermont to grow. It's one of the reasons why I ran for this office. I, I want to see more opportunities for current and future generations to stay here, live here, work here, and thrive here. Is it time for a new education funding formula? It is time for a new education funding formula in Vermont. Now, I would also say it's, it's not just about the funding. It's about the spending, but I think you can connect those two. We need to align incentives and consequences of spending decisions if we're going to keep them at the local level. And our, I would increasingly of the opinion our current funding formula does not do that. Republican Senator Russ Ingalls, who represents the Essex District in the Northeast Kingdom, said lawmakers didn't think through enough the potential consequences of the 5% tax cap included in Act 127. I would say it's a disaster at this point in time. Um, we thought we had a pretty good mechanism. It uh, failed miserably. Um, it's almost like you built a new bathroom in a house and didn't put any water to it, only to find out after you built the house it leaked like a sieve. We just have to do better. How did we get in this situation? I think that we allowed a little bit of a meddling from the House side that really kind of uh, showed weaknesses in this Act 172. We should have, in retrospect, kind of stuck to our guns. But somehow we convinced people that there was this big pot of money that no matter what their budget was um, you know, planned out for, that we had enough funds to cover it. And you know, school, uh, school budgets raise realistically 3 to 7% every year. And uh, I don't know that any budget raised that little. I, you know, we had budgets as high as 40%. So somewhere along the way, the message we got out there was flawed. How does Vermont get out of it? I think we just have to get back to a solid system of um, uh, reining in spending. Um, this, you know, we're $25,000 per student, over $2.2 billion. We lead almost the world in um, uh, education spending, and we're in the middle of the pack. I would spend whatever we could spend if we were at the top, and we're not. Uh, we have to have honest conversations. We have to have honest conversations at the local levels. The superintendents have to be honest with uh, everybody that they're talking with. Uh, I think the uh, the unions need to get involved with it a little bit, and um, I think we just need to find a way to... It just has to be an equitable situation throughout the state, but it has to be honest conversations with people coming to the table, putting behind, beside their personal beliefs, their personal agendas, and, um, and start putting kids first and figure out a way to do that. But it has to be honest conversations with everybody at the table um, with a common goal, and that is to give us the best education system that we can for a fair price and, and turn out results. 
What does honest conversations mean to you? Fewer schools? I don't believe it could be fewer schools. I believe it needs to be how many uh, adults do we need in the classrooms, where we need salaries to be. Um, but just let's just go back to putting kids first um, in education, no matter how it is, even if it means to be getting them out of the public school system. We have a lot of private schools out there um, that are doing a very great job with very great results for a, a lot less money. It isn't education isn't about money. It's about effort. And um, I don't know if all, all the efforts going in the right direction. What do you think is going to happen town meeting day? I think you're going to see 50 to 60 percent of the budgets voted down. Vermonters, 75 percent of Vermonters are paycheck to paycheck. It's just the way it is. And uh, nobody can afford a 20 percent increase on top of um, the, uh, the, the high levels of fuel costs, uh, high levels of food costs, um, the high levels of energy costs, the high levels of insurance costs. Um, there's only so much to go around. And, um, you know, kids, uh, people want their kids to be educated in an equitable way. Um, and But it, it gets to the point where there just isn't money, enough money to go around. If all those budgets get turned down, can the legislature do anything between now and the end of the session to make a difference? Boy, um, yeah, um, I, I, you know, I think we need to. I, I think we just need to set aside some of these other um, um, ideas uh, that, uh, you know, that probably are counterproductive to what government should be doing. Um, there's a lot of them out there. I mean, we could take them down off, but I won't. But, you know, if we, if we rolled our sleeves up and got back to an honest conversation about where we needed to be, I think we could. I think if, 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 if all else fails, um, maybe we could get back to the, uh, the real intent of what 172 was and um, um, put some water to it to test it to make sure it doesn't leak anymore. What do you think the real intent was? I think it was. A, I think it was in a good way. I mean, I, the way it was described to us. I mean, you know, education funding is complicated. I don't think it needs to be that complicated. Um, I, 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 if you can't go back and explain it to your uh, constituents, then maybe maybe we shouldn't be doing that. But it is complicated. But the way it was rolled out to us, um, you know, we had an hour presentation on the floor. It's it sounded like it was just a, a neat idea that um, that uh, um, the towns that were underserved would be getting um, uh, more money. The ones that um, were were able to spend more money on education would be willing, willingly or or, or not. But um, you know, they they would pass along some of their funds to um, to the smaller rural areas. And, um, and it, it sounded good. Um, but again, uh, once you put water to that thing, it leaked like a sieve. Um, and especially with the, um, the part of where the house, um, uh, that five-year uh, gap where the, we were going to phase in sending more monies to the poorer towns, um, they, the, you know, the, the house thought that that should have been done immediately right from the start. Uh, that, that was a mistake. But we do have a history here in Montpelier of propping up failed policies that don't work and too afraid to start over. I don't know that I don't know that we have time to start over before the end of the session, but you know we should start and we should start immediately. And if it has to go in the summer, we can't we can't be looking to um, 
Um, we can't be looking to uh, have a repeat of this. Uh, you, you know, in, in life, in business, um, you try, you, you're going to make mistakes. You make mistakes, but you admit them and you move on and you try not to make them again. And we've been battling this uh, education funding for just too many years. Let's just get to work and let's put every, all of our personal opinions and everything aside and let's come up with a reasonable, fair, equitable um, funding source um, to, um, to, to put an end to the uncertainty every time of year that we seem to have uh, come town meeting time. It's been a long time uh, uh, since the Supreme Court struck down uh, the way that we were doing it before. But um, again, you know, a lot of special interests in there that are really wanting to make sure that it, it doesn't happen the way that it should happen. That wraps it up for this edition of 802 News, sponsored in part by Red Hen Baking Company. Thanks for listening. 